and welcome to episode of Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And here on Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories in them. And today, I do not have Thomas Horton with me. I have my good friend and my roommate, David Glenn IV, joining me, returning from David Cronenberg episode that we did back in October, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's good, been to, a, it's good been, to be back. It's been a while. It has been a while. Uh, yeah, David's my roommate. Uh, our other roommate's in, in here as well. Not currently in the room, but is in, in the apartment. So he might come in and out. You might hear you might hear our roommate. Z, I don't know. Um, this is it's weird to me because usually Thomas and I always record this over Zoom, and we're doing this in person. So I have to have like my social skills back. I like looking at you when I'm talking. Um, it's a different. It's a different. The, yeah, the computer. computer yeah. Distance, yeah, it's it's very. Yeah, it's like I always hear Thomas. I just see the screen, and now I'm, I'm interviewing someone, talking to someone in person with this episode with my script for the show. So uh, enough about that. But this 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 series we are talking about heist movies. We've talked about in the past few episodes. We talked about Out of Sight. Talked about Inside Man. And the heist genre, as we've covered, has been around for pretty much since the dawn of cinema and film since then. And we, and, and the, the high, the high genre has morphed over time with, uh, sometimes you have the interplay of like law enforcement and criminal world, like with out of sight or even inside man, where it's the kind of respect that these two people have. I think some tropes you will see kind of the, um, the, it's always a stylistic thing. Like heist movies are always very stylistic, very slick. A lot of the times, um, and usually young filmmakers like to kind of get their like grant like footing, I guess, in the heist genre, as we'll talk about today. Um, and you kind of have kind of the, the character archetypes of like, or like kind of tropes of like the heist, the, the, the robber who like wants the one last job so he can go and retire or something and, or like an asphalt jungle, go off to a, a farm in Kentucky right. that he grew up on. Um, or it's, yeah. And I mean, out of sight makes fun of it. Like, have you ever, have you ever met a person who did that? Like went off and had a good life after robbing banks for so many years. Um, and then you have, I think they have the idea of like the perfect heist and pulling off the perfect heist, um, in these films. And I think today's movie with the killing is, is something that it kind of covers a lot of those ideas. It covers the, the character who wants to, I think Johnny Clay, Sterling Hayden wants to, Mm-hmm. go and have especially a, having come out come out of prison yeah, yeah. Out and of that's prison. another probably trope of the of the genre yeah the recent you know yeah it's the oceans 11 danny yeah. ocean getting out of ocean uh, getting out of the getting out of the prison and being like i'm gonna rob three casinos in vegas like it's like that's always like and that's interesting talking about that it's an interesting kind of idea of looking at how the prison system is is that like the only way for like criminals when they come out into the world is to go back to crime right because that's the one thing they, they, they know how to do and can get the most money for right so that's interesting i don't I haven't thought about that and i wonder if there's more to that in this genre but yeah so that's kind of what we've talked about we've covered a variety of decades and now we're going back in time to 1956 with the killing and the killing was directed by stanley kubrick one of his early films um it stars uh sterling hayden Colleen Gray, Vincent Edwards, a, a lot of character actors of the era, which we'll go into of how they all kind of came about. Uh, another kind of major player uh, produced by James B. Harris, uh, who was Kubrick's early collaborator when, when Kubrick got started in the industry. Um, and one other name you'll, ha- you'll see is uh, Jim Thompson, who did the dialogue for the movie, and Jim Thompson, who which wrote, is amazing. Yeah, who wrote The Killer Inside Me, a lot of crime fiction novels and we'll talk about kind of how that came into play because it's an interesting credit there's an interesting credit with how they do it yeah um uh for this movie so so yeah that's what we're talking about it's currently streaming on several uh, several places i think pluto tv and tubi maybe hoopla if you guys it was have on that. prime at one point too it was on prime yeah. at one point yeah it was on criterion i think for a little bit too yeah. but i think 
it's kind of popping around. It's all there is a Criterion um, release uh, for it, which was actually one of the first Criterions I bought. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a, it's and a I good love set the cover because because in, in the set there's Killer's Kiss, which was Kubrick's right. technically second film, uh, and we'll and Killer's Kiss will get a few mentions today um, with Kubrick's career. But yeah, so. Uh, we talk, we, this has been in the making, I think, for months, it feels like, bringing you back on mm-hmm. for an episode and Heist. It was either erotic thrillers or Heist movies is kind of what we were talking about at one point. Um, and Heist was your preferred genre. And so, and The Killing was the first movie that you had mentioned that you would want to do. So why, why did you pick The Killing for this episode? Uh, the Killing is just one of those movies that has had a huge influence on me, like aesthetically and, and also structurally, like as a writer. Yeah. Uh, but also, I mean, it, it, to me, it's just like the, the definitive heist movie of this era. I, th- I think it just hits all the beats. And I think it's like it's just a perfect example, like you're saying, of like, yeah, we look at them as like tropes now. But I think at the time, it's kind mm-hmm. of it's not necessarily defining the tropes, but like yeah. uh, solidifying them in kind of the way that Halloween did for the slashers on or, or something of that nature, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I thought the same way because like I, I wrote down my notes of like, is this the first movie where like they're robbed? And it's, it's not probably, yeah. but like robbing a like an event, if that makes sense. Right. It's like it's it's the the NASCAR race and Logan Lucky. It's the fight night and Ocean's Eleven. Um, it's like what's the big event that like ties to the heist in some way? And mm-hmm. so I was like, is this the first time like we're ri- we're robbing a racetrack like uh, on a big race day? and not even like a big race day? It's just, it's just a race day. Yeah, and they're robbing this racetrack. Um, yeah, I thought the same thing. And and, he, and we'll go into like the nonlinear structure of it. Like uh, there's all stuff feels very influential where you can tie back to um this movie in some way and in fact the first i think the first time i watched this the reason i watched it was because uh i remember reading or hearing tarantino said this was a big influence on reservoir dogs yeah so, it's like and we'll get in that because there's like a lot a lot of people have, have kind of heaped praise on the movie as being influential and tarantino said what think reservoir dogs and i think some people like kind of pinpoint uh pulp fiction as well yeah because the structure because yeah, the structure of it all um but yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah, so so how so you how did you come about with the killing? So you it was because Tarantino had mentioned it was why you watched the first I think that time. Was, yeah, the first time, and then I bought the Criterion, uh-huh. uh, and I like I said, I love the cover. It's like, yeah. it's a that hand like crafted image of, of Sterling Hayden with the mask, and he's just kind yeah. of in a black void. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's such a simple cover. Those are some always some of my yeah. Favorite and the, the disc is like because I have the disc. It's like yeah. it's like it's like the horseshoe is what it is, yeah. which comes into play later. It's very kind of it's interesting because it's kind of like a, it's a horseshoe. It's like it does the racetrack, but also it becomes kind of a plot. Yeah. Uh, moment uh, later on in the film, right? Timothy Carey. Um, but yeah, my my history. It's like I, I it's interesting. We we did Eyes Wide Shut a few months ago. And now we're doing this, and I feel like both these movies are the ones I've like. But outside, well, outside of the Shining, are like the ones I've Killing and the Shining are the ones I've probably watched the most from Kubrick. Weirdly enough, um, and for a guy who's he's twenty seven when he makes this, which is kind of insane. Yeah, that's my age. So. Yeah, I know. And it's like, and you look at like, and and really, it's you look at his first two movies of like fear and desire and then killer's kiss. And then this, and it's just, and I haven't watched fear and desire, but I know like he, well, he wanted to destroy it. Like he, he tried yeah, he to destroy it. it in negatives, Late, yeah. Yeah, later on yeah. in life. He's like, I hate this movie. And understandably. So like, I, you know, I'm not going to rag on it because I don't think that many filmmakers can reach the heights that Kubrick reached later in his career, you know? Yeah. But you look at fear and desire and you're like, everybody had to start somewhere, but yeah. you, can, you can watch it on YouTube. I mean, it's, it's, um, yeah. it feels like a student film, which yeah. is interesting when yeah. you look at like, this three years later yeah. like that compared to this is this is just so much more um uh slick and just like it feels like you're in a filmmaker's hands whereas that does not it feels like it's, you know yeah a guy playing around film. with the yeah. camera yeah. i think it's on prime i think because i try to watch it but it was like a colorized version Ooh, and i yeah, was like yeah. i'm not watching this 
and not saying colorize is bad but uh, it was just like it also just, it was a bad uh transfer it looked like so it sure. was bad transfer and in color and when you force color and what was shot in black and white it just always is going to kind of feel weird unless it's like really good colorization yeah um but yeah it was like so so yeah i've, I've watched this several times i think i'd watch this and killer's kiss is one i've watched several times as well and that again that's an interesting kind of point where like he he have he gets better from fear and desire from the clips i've seen yeah to uh killer's kiss which he made well i found out was like basically he shot everything he kind of like stole all the shots or whatever he shot everything without sound and then like added it in oh wow that's what, what i read when researching for this so it was like he was like trying to make a movie and that's why james b harris as we'll get into later like had met him previously and he's like, yeah, like everyone always talks about making their movie. Is, I feel this way in, in my life now. But everyone talks about making their movie, but no one actually like does it or they like go halfway into it and they run out of money or something. But he's like, I was impressed because Kubrick actually had made two movies and had finished it at such a like young yeah. age. He was like, he, that was a feat in itself. Um, but yes, yeah, so I've, I've watched it several times. We did like a screening of it uh, pre-COVID at Sideshow Bookstore and here in, here in LA, here in Culver, in Culver City. And uh, we had Kubrick's assist, uh, a longtime assistant, Leon Vitale, come and talk about it. And he, even though he like he wasn't with Kubrick during this moment in time in his career, but like he he said Kubrick was always fond of kind of a lot of these earlier movies he did, except Fear and Desire. But he's like his like documentaries and his kind of shorts, and I think The Killing is something that he he always liked. And it's again for twenty seven, and and they really kind of see like you go. Fear and Desire, Killer's Kiss, one kind of one bad movie in most people's opinion, one just kind of mixed. Killer's Kiss is like it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a pretty solid like B noir. Yeah, it but is. It, but it's not like up to the standard of, of no. Kubrick. You know, it's stylistic. You know, yeah. It's interesting visually. Yeah, and because Kubrick had a background in photography and like I think for Look Magazine is what it was and all that. Yeah, his um, photographs are really interesting. Yeah. if you ever take a look at them. But I think he's, he talked to the producer James B, or James James Harris had mentioned he's like Kubrick says like if you just have an interesting scene you can kind of point the camera anywhere. But that's also like where do you point the camera? Is it, right. Is is one of the and biggest his framing, decisions? And his framing, you know, is 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 spectacular. Yeah, yeah. In all, in it, all, is, it is. Yeah. Um. So let's get into how this movie got to production, how it got made. So when it comes to the making of the killing, the core of of the story of its story is the collaboration between Stanley Kubrick and producer James B. Harris. Um, according to several interviews with Harris, he met Stanley through a mutual friend, Alexander Singer, and Harris had met Singer while they were in the army together, serving as combat photographers. And Singer was a childhood friend of Kubrick. Uh, after the, uh, and or he, Singer was a childhood friend of Kubrick, and after the military service, Singer introduced Harris to Kubrick. Um, it seems like some time passed after this and, and Harris and Kubrick kind of like lost, like they just met one another and then later on they run to each other again and like, oh yeah, you're, you're Alex Alexander's friend or whatever. Like we met that one time. I've heard rumor or reports from several online sources. I've never heard this really from James Harris's interviews, but they, people said that they met, they reunited or met for the first time when Kubrick was playing chess in Washington Square in New York City. Hmm. And and Harris wouldn't was, surprise me. Yeah, and Harris was looking for like I'm looking for new talent, and 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 that's a good like like fairy tale like narrative to say like oh I met him and playing chess in Washington Square. That's very Kubrickian in one way of like he was playing chess. Um, but it sounded like there was more to that, uh, and I don't know how truly true that is. But what is true is that when they did re meet, uh, they did reunite. 
uh, Kubrick uh, was holding a screening of his new films, Killer's Kiss, around that time, and he invited Harris to attend. And Harris attended the screening and was incredibly impressed by Kubrick's talent and his film. And Killer's Kiss had already received distribution from United Artists, and Kubrick was wanting to make some money off his debut feature, Fear and Desire. And he wanted to kind of put it on television, and he believed Harris could help him with that. And Harris was working in television distribution at the time, and he tried to help Kubrick, but they soon realized the rights of Fear and Desire were tied up in legal matters with the film's main distributor um, when it came out. Um, but Harris and Kubrick hit it off and they wanted to work together in some way. And Kubrick, the plan was Kubrick's going to direct, Harris was going to produce. And because of the distribution with United Artists for Killer's Kiss, uh, the duo, the duo was told they had an open door policy, uh, with United Artists, whatever films they wanted to pitch to them. Um, and they could pitch whatever United Artists would, would give them money to help develop it was what they were told. Um, Harris and Kubrick did not have any ideas of what their first project would be together. So Harris went to Scribner's, a local bookstore in New York City that's now, I think, closed in the 80s. Uh, and he began searching for a possible book they could adapt. And while he was there, he found a crime novel written by Lionel White called Clean Break. And it was about a group of men who decided to rob a racetrack. And Harris thought it would make a really good idea for a film after reading it. So he bought the book, took it to Kubrick. He read it immediately, and he also believed it was a great film. And the main thing that enticed them, both of them really, not just Kubrick, was the story's nonlinear structure within the book and the telling of the heist and repeating moments from different perspectives throughout the story. And so Harris quickly bought the rights for the novel, even though someone else was trying to get the rights for it. Uh, apparently, Frank Sinatra was interested in the book, to star in and he wanted to buy it but he wasn't returning the publisher's calls and was hard to get in contact with and so they kind of beat him to it they told harris that if, they, if he sent them a telegram saying he was buying the rights to clean break they would accept it as his offer and give him the the book and beating sinatra out because i think also they were look they're actually harris they, they thought sinatra would be good for the lead at one point and they're like oh he's trying to buy it but let's not like deal with him um so they buy it but they also i've read that they had optioned or bought another one of White's novels called The Snatch, which was about a child being kidnapped, oh. which was very like production code era. We couldn't talk about like it was those two like not part. You can't yeah. kidnap a child. It's like the main plot of the movie. It felt like um, so it sounded like they might have switched their rights to it and got Clean Break instead or went after Clean Break instead after that. Or that movie, I think, eventually got made in like late 60s is what it was. Um, but Clean Break was the one they ended up getting. They pitched the book to United Artists, and they said, it sounds great, and they should go write a script for it and then come back with it. And they're like, you're not paying us to develop the script? What's what's?" The, he's, like, he's like, oh, yeah, we'll listen to it when you have the script. He's like, what's that open door policy? That's that We can, ha we can do that with any studio in town, like go in with the script. Like this is what do we get from this with this relationship? Um, and it's like, yeah, so fine. We go and write the script. Kubrick was a fan of Jim Thompson, who had written, as I said, The Killer Inside Me, and they had contacted them him about helping them write the script. It seems Kubrick wrote an outline of some kind, or maybe an extensive outline or something, like the screenplay direction of it, and then Thompson came in and wrote the dialogue for the movie, or at least contributed to the dialogue of the film. Um, and the, ba the main thing, reason why Kubrick wanted to write the this kind of screenplay aspect is that he wanted to keep aspect of it. He wanted to keep that nonlinear structure intact. 
Um, now the script, United Arts, like, hey, this, this is pretty good. Um, give us a big star and we'll give you money. And that, like, they're just giving them like, why we need you is what it feels like to me. <laughs> um, but they wanted a big star and Kubrick and Harris began looking for a lead. And they got word. Uh, they actually got a call from Sterling Hayden's agent who said that Hayden was interested in the film. And he loved the script. Uh, I think the agent believed it was Stanley Kramer that was making the movie at first, not Stanley oh. Kubrick. <laughs> Stanley Kramer, big time director at the time, more kind of like dramas and things of that nature at that point. A, kind of like an A-list director, it felt like a journeyman, work like like working director. But they're like, agents like, who the, who the hell is Stanley Kubrick? Um, and they liked Hayden because Hayden had starred in several other noir films. One of his biggest ones, kind of his breakout role, was another movie very similar to this, John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle, where another it's another heist movie about him playing a robber trying to complete one last job to go off and have get married and have a life just like he is in this movie. Um, and he had also starred in other films like Crime Wave and Suddenly, which coincidentally also starred Frank Sinatra uh, a few years before. Hayden would eventually be paid forty thousand dollars the role which is the equivalent of four hundred and twenty thousand dollars today um mm. united artists but however united artists did not think hayden was a big enough star uh so they would not put the amount of money kubrick and harris needed for the film they only agreed to put up two hundred thousand dollars for the budget and they warned harris and kubrick not to find other financiers for it because the movie wouldn't make its money back uh wouldn't make enough to recoup that budget uh, they also told them if they added more money United Artists would be the first people to get their money back. They were in first position, basically. Whatever happens, we're making the money. Whoever came and got money later, they get it later. Um, Harris believed the film couldn't be made for less than $300,000. So he put up $80,000 of his own money that he had somehow saved. And then he got his father to give him a loan of $50,000, bringing the film's total budget to $330,000. Uh, which is about $3.5 million today. Still a fairly low-budget movie. Oh, for sure, yeah. Even in today's term, especially for what they're doing in it. Um, now it's time for them to create an ensemble to surround Hayden. Uh, in an interview with Criterion, Harris said the casting process is where he really saw how knowledgeable Kubrick was when it came to movies and character actors. Harris said that it seemed like he was either watching a movie or reading a book uh, all the time, and it seemed he was either... Uh, uh, Kubrick had begun finding actors that he had loved... Uh, from other noir films also it seems westerns like every time i look at like and that's more just the period sure, that we sure. were in especially character actors they're in noir films and westerns because yeah. there are a lot are being made and, or crime dramas at the time they're called it went noir till a little bit later crime dramas and westerns because they're made for cheap and they can get character actors who who are always working um and so he got a couple of the actors they cast colleen gray who had starred in the original nightmare alley and also uh, howard hawks's red river um, they got J.C. Flippin, who plays Marvin, who is, I believe, kind of the nicer guy that works for them. Yeah, but he's like he's kind of not the ringleader, but he's kind of like the 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 money man. He's putting the the yes. the, the, the yes. money up. For yeah, them. and so Marvin had starred in uh, They Live by Night with uh, with uh, um, Nicholas Ray movie, right? Nicholas yeah. Ray, thank you. Um, but he also starred in several other Anthony Mann westerns like Ben of the River, Winchester 73, like the ones that starred Jimmy Stewart. Um, they also got Elijah Cook Jr. Who I love. Who's amazing. He's amazing. He's, he, look, if you just look at his uh, career, it's really interesting. It's crazy. It, yeah. It's he's like, really good in House on Haunted Hill. I think. Yeah. yeah. Really understated in that movie. And like he's he's like, because I remember we, we, I think I was doing an episode 
uh, a few years or a year or so ago with Amy, Amy uh, about Ball of Fire. And I said, oh, yeah, there's Elijah Cook Jr. She's like, how do you know who that is? I was just like, this man is like a legend. Well, he also has a very particular <laughs> he face. He has a very face, yeah. very particular eyes. And like his, even his style of acting, like it, yeah. it's it's like a, a manic performance, but not yeah. like over the top, no, you know? No, 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 no. And so he he had played, he had been several noir films, some that were considered like the first noir films. He was in the Maltese Falcon. Right. He was in A Strange on the Third Floor, which was right before them, which is kind of a more, more lesser known noir, but also stars Pierre Laurie uh, and The Big Sleep. And which is also considered like one of the definitive definitive noirs. noirs. Yeah. Um, uh, they also got Mary Windsor who plays Sh- uh, Sherry, uh, Elijah Cook Jr.'s uh, wife in this movie. And she had previously, she had a great performance in a movie called Narrow Margin uh, from the, from the fifties. Would you consider her a, a film fatale in this? Yeah, I would consider her a film fatale in this. I think it's like, she, I don't know if it's like she's a film fatale. It's interesting. She's not a film fatale for the main characters in a way. She's a film fatale for Val, yeah. who's like the side guy who's just like, oh, there's money involved. I'm going to get this. And like he, she ends up kind of getting him. It's interesting. It's an interesting kind of take of like some of the tropes with it, um, right. with this movie. Um, so they get Timothy Carey, who had co-starred with Sterling Hayden in a movie called Crime Wave, a really int- kind of a uh, lesser known but interesting noir film, L.A. noir of the, of the era. Uh, the the only non actor in the movie um, that was cast was uh, apologize for butchering his name uh, Cola Kawani. Is it uh, the guy who plays Maurice? He plays uh, yes, he plays Maurice. Yeah. he's the the former wrestler. He the, was the muscle, the muscle who is the gets in the bar fight. Um, he was a friend of Kubrick that played chess with him. Is what it was. He was a chess player. That's funny then, because he's playing. You know, when when he's introduced, yep. he's in the chess hall. Yeah, he's, ba- he's, yeah. he's not even playing. He's like trying he, to coach the people. Yeah, with. and he's also like a former wrestler uh, in real life, or in real life he was. And he, I think he, play, he, he has like a wrestling stuff in his right, or am I, am I just kind of confused? Oh no, no, no that totally explains like the the moves. Like he lifts the dude over his shoulders yeah. and like spins. Yeah, is the only movie he ever starred. It was in. It was the only oh, wow. movie he was ever in. But Harris, yeah. So he so it's Kubrick casting all these people. The only Harris, the only actor that he brought to the table was Vince Edwards who plays Val Sherry's lover because he was friends he was a friend of Harris and and uh, oh, okay. Vince Edwards would later be in Murder by Contract a really good kind of noir film I think a year later um so as this movie was shaping up the cast coming together Harris and Kubrick traveled from New York City to LA to go make the killing and that leads us into favorite scenes so David what's one of your kind of favorite scenes or moments uh so in this movie they're like i love how the, it breaks apart the heist by character but i think yeah. my favorite portion is the sterling hayden portion yeah you know i won't like spoil everything but like the way it like um how do i say this so he when he go he goes into the locker room to get the gun and all it, like it really yeah. takes its time to show each step yeah along the way but i, I love that sequence and i love how kubrick can conti- i love how he shoots the locker room yeah uh, not even just that moment when they're setting it up too like when um Mm-hmm. The um the bar uh I can't the think bartender of yeah, the yeah. bartender is putting the gun in the locker uh yeah. you know he's being all paranoid and stuff but the way he shoots everything in that in that room is always like a lateral dolly move yeah. back and forth back, back and, forth. and forth it's really interesting um and I wonder if that's just because they wanted to just face that side and like not build the rest of the set yeah. or, or or what but uh it's 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 interesting yeah hey but he does a lot of that he does it even with the with when in the apartments yeah in the apartment he does it in the racetrack like kind of like tick or like the the payment area in the yeah. bar like that's all like in a, in a, and I've seen kind of like set photos of like how they have like big like window frames in front of the lights, mm. like show like it's shining down, and, but everything kind of moves laterally in a way um, in the movie. I mean, it's because it was just cheap movie. They, yeah, yeah. they couldn't shoot everything. Um, 
and there's not there's there's some like like on location stuff, but not a lot. It's more right. just like beer, like kind of B roll stuff. Um, and it yeah. was shot in Los Angeles, right? Yes, or, it yeah. was. Yes, it was. Uh, for the mo- I'll get to that later, but for the most part, there's one part that's shot. Uh, at least one part that's shot elsewhere up in in San Francisco area. Oh, okay. We'll get into that. Um, yeah, Hayden's scenes are are great. I think Hayden. I mean, from the very beginning, when like it it, it kind of starts off with like them. It breaks down like what we're, like the heist we're kind of in, like what they're doing, and then it goes into the uh, their meeting around the table, and like the way Kubrick lights that scene, yeah, is fantastic. And even just the coverage, it's like yeah, the only person that has like a tight single is the is the the uh, the leader, uh, Mar- what's his name, Marv, right? Yeah, Marvin. Yeah, Marvin. He's yeah. the only one that has a single. Everybody yeah. else, uh, you, Sterling does have a sort of a single, but it's over the shoulders. Yeah, and it's over the two guys on the yeah. upside. Of, but when they cut to Marv, it's just him. Yeah. But everybody else is like, it's three people, or it's like yeah. a two shot, or it's like over the shoulders. Yeah. It's really interesting how you. Again, how, it's being it's being lit from the top. It's, yeah. it's almost like it reminds me a little bit. It's a very much smaller ver. It's a much smaller version of Doctor Strange Love when they're around the table yeah. in the war room yeah. where it's lit from above. Yeah. Uh, and I love when there's a moment where Hayden like leans back and he goes out of the light. And yeah. Leans and back he comes in. in. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Um, um, like how your sound just did when I listened. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a free effect for you, man. Well, let's take a look at this then. This is a rough drawing of the track as I remember it. Randy, you'll have to get me an A1 street map of the whole district. George, Mike, I want you to go over this thing with me inch by inch. Bring it completely up to date. Add or subtract the slightest change, even if it's something as small as the placing of a hot dog stand. Now, give or take a few thousand, I figure the loot on this deal at two million. <laughs> there should be that much in the track offices. That includes profits on the parimutuel betting, the breakage money, taxes from the mutual machines, receipts from the concessions, and the money from ticket sales. The timeline of this movie is so ingenious to me. And it's and it's like again I I'm I've always heard Tarantino talk about like he loves novels like he loves jumping around in movies because it's like novels where you can just kind of like go backwards and right. forwards and go wherever see things from different perspectives and and this movie feels like it's definitely like trying to capture that feeling of a novel in some way with the different perspectives um, and I like how you just you start kind of it's like you see everything from different perspectives but also like you're each time you're gaining a little bit more information. Yeah about something and it's very detailed you literally see every step yeah like you see you him do. dropping off the it's, key yeah. you see him like it, it the movie moves so incredibly well yeah like it's a short movie too which helps it's only like what 83 84 minutes, minutes total like from from start to finish um and it like i was like man we're really at the end of this movie yeah and, and i love it and it, it sets up really simple character motivations for yeah. each of them yeah. for the entire you know entire yeah. crew yeah I think elijah cook jr's guy was like he he's it's it's a guy who's like very much emasculated by his wife right. is what it feels and, like and manipulated. Manipul- and, yeah, she, you know. yeah, he's manipulated by her. Uh, like he he loves her or he, yeah he loves her or loves the idea of her. I guess you could say. Yeah. And she just feels like how it's like she like had to get married to somebody. It feels like she marries him because he has like a steady job, but yeah. she really wants. Well, the, he also it seems like he promised her more than what he yeah delivered, it, yeah because yeah, like he's probably he's an older guy. He's like oh no, I'm gonna make so much more money. Like I'll we're gonna take live care in the apartment on Park Avenue. Yeah, like it's gonna be a great time. And it's like I work at a racetrack, taking yeah. tickets to pay people money that I don't have. Um and and so she's kind of always like manipulate him in some way to like do bigger, do better. And of course, she's seeing a guy on the side. Um, uh, Val, because like he's the younger, like kind of bad boy. I don't even know what he does, but it's just like she calls him like, "Hey, like I think my my husband's trying to like 
do something big. He's not a liar. He's it's like he's not a liar. He's kind of a, like a, a dweeb. It kind of feels yeah, like he calls, but he's not, meat, he calls him a meatball. It's, yeah, it's, it's like but he's not, yeah, but he's not. He's not. I mean, Elijah Kutcher has like a just a really interesting arc because he goes from being like this meek man who never stands up to himself to like. I mean, I feel like if he. I feel like if he doesn't do what he does, you don't have this massive shootout at the end. No, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's like he. Well, I think he's isn't isn't kind of the subtext there that. Oh wait, we don't want to. No, 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 go ahead. No. Hey, isn't kind of the subtext there that he's waiting for Sterling Hayden? If he's waiting for Johnny, because he's he thinks that Johnny and her did something because that's what she tells him. Yes, like, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, she he she makes it feel like that. Like but that's why he brings the gun. I feel like. Yeah, that. it's like oh, you like talking about Johnny. Yeah, Johnny did something to her when when she was because she shows up at one point trying to spy on them and figure out what's going on. And she's like, oh, like, yeah, like you, like I saw he had an address in his, his jacket pocket and I wanted to like. And she thought he was two-time in yeah, her. Yeah, two-time. That's her. That's all. Well, that's, that's Elijah Cook Jr.'s story. The alibi. It's yeah. a great scene too when like that he gives her an alibi and then Giant Clay's like, we know this is not true. Like we know, like yeah. Hayden's like, we know you didn't think he was running around you. Like, plus like you probably wouldn't care if he was. Right. Because you probably are on him. And then I love the scene afterwards when they're, when it's, when, um. Uh, uh, Sherry and George are back at the apartment. In their apartment, and he and sh- and he's like, "Why did you show up?" Well, I told, I said because you because I found your thing. He's like, "No, no, no, that's the alibi I gave you." But I know that's not why you were that's there. That's not why you were there because we talked about this. Why were you there? And that it's a great scene. Just like he knows something's up, but he just always like tries to be in love with her like and yeah. like give her the benefit of the well, doubt even in the in the scene that kind of sets up their relationship he says like if i ever caught you with another man but he doesn't finish that sentence no so, no, no. Yeah. And so you I'm find curious. out what yeah. would happen yeah. you find out what happened when you, when you caught him with that man it's like he he would kill so many people basically is what it would be <laughs> and he yeah he, like, it's like literally it's like you look at that scene after that shootout because in, in the scene is that they're waiting for hayden to show back up with the money the heist is Mostly going gone according to plan. Yeah, it, it, Hayden's a little late, but ever, other than that, yeah. all the details. Like, the only, went, only yeah. thing is that Timothy Carey got shot. Right, like right. Timothy Carey got caught. But I feel like he was at a certain point dispensable because he, he, he did what he what he needed yeah. to do. Hayden could care less what happens to Carey once he shoots the horse. Right, like, once he shoots the horse in the leg to, to distract red the lightning. Um, red lightning. I like red lightning. I love the way he says that. Who are you like? Red lightning. <laughs> um, in the seventh. In the seventh. In the seventh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But Carrie's uh, odd. He's an odd character. Odd man. Um, yeah, I was wondering, was he, is he always have that kind of slur, or is he doing he, that on purpose? I think he's always kind of like okay. He, like he, he, in Crime Wave, because I, I saw him in Crime Wave, and that's where I've seen him. And he plays like a very, he's like a henchman in Crime Wave, but he's just like crazy. And they're like, oh, yeah, we saw him in that movie. I'm like, we want to cast him in this film. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah. I wonder this might be jumping ahead in like in terms of like recast it but like, i swear he just looks like a nick cage like, oh wow like i, I don't even think that but that's I amazing would totally put nick cage in that role and it was a little bit even small like, i just put put nick cage in that role yeah. like i could just see nick nick cage being like red lightning <laughs> <laughs> uh like when someone asked him well, who, you, who you going for um but yeah no so it's like but yeah that's like the only mishap and then cook like they get into the scene and Val shows up and it's just like, I've been waiting for too long. Where's the money at? Yeah. 
and just impatient and then just like kind of calls out george and george is like i'm shooting everyone and like literally it's like it's that shot when like he everyone starts shooting and then you just walk out and like george is walking out he with just like, comes out blasting he comes out blasting he has like he has like blood on his oh, face because yeah, yeah. like of the of the kind of like debris and like he's been kind of sh- he's been hurt and he just walks out and like everyone's just on the floor and valets off a shotgun burst too yeah and that's probably what kind of catches him like the yeah. bird shot of it but like it's just like everyone's on the floor and then just like he gets out and runs it. And I love it's this. It's I this. love that shot when he comes out and, yeah. and Hayden pulls up. Yeah. And Hayden's just like, nah, I'm leaving. So see, <laughs> this might be jumping ahead, but that's kind of, that's the point where the narration kind of bugged me because that's such yeah. a visual, like Kubrick shot. Like this tells you everything you need to know, yeah. but then the narration has to spell it out. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll say this now. I don't like the narration. Like it's like at first I was, cause it, cause like it's not really consistent. If that makes sure. sense. It's like, it's just when like they're making a jump. Yeah. And he's like, and it feels like the studio's like, hey, you gotta put something in here to like yeah. make this make well, sense. Well, like, like it's fine in the opening because it feels novelistic. It feels like it's introducing yeah. you into the world, you yeah. know. But um, and the character, you know, the it, feel, it feels weirdly now you say it like that. Like almost, it reminds me. I keep this movie's on my mind a lot because we covered it. It's like it's Magnolia. It's like Ricky J, like doing the opening yeah. narration. Magnolia. Because he's an om- omniscient narrator. Yeah. Isn't he? yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know if he's in it through the entire he's movie. Not, I don't think he is. And like it's almost like you just need it for the beginning and ending of the movie. Yeah. But, but I mean, how many noir films can you think of where the narrator isn't a protagonist or another character yeah. in the story? It, you know? it, it creates this more like procedural uh, right. uh, uh, crime drama. Like it's, right. it feels like it's it's dragnet or something in a way. Yeah. Which is why it feels a little odd off. Um, but yeah, it does feel like I was like, it's, this feels like a docudrama at the beginning. It was like, oh, yeah. I wonder. And then it doesn't. It just kind of. It feels it disappears like, for a while. It disappears it, for a while. And it comes back when the heist starts taking off, and they're just like. We want to kind of like, I think it's just like, we don't want to make the audience too confused. And so yeah. we'll, we'll go on that later with like kind of what happens. But I think that, it, I know I know it's like we're talking 50s audience compared to today. Yes. But I yes. think that shot literally tells you everything you need yeah. to know. He hates just like, oh, hell no. What just happened? Yeah. And it's, it's, but he comes it, out with blood on his face, like run into his car. Yeah. And, with and narr- stumbling. Yeah. yeah. With the narration, it's like, what's interesting is like, I think Kubrick, I think I read that like he, he hated doing it so much from the studio's insistence. So like, he just like, kind of said random things or whatever like that didn't go with what was being yeah shown. I, I did i did uh read that that, yeah. that that it didn't uh that it's not always telling the truth that the yeah, it's not always telling always, the yeah. truth johnny arrived at the meeting place at 729 still 15 minutes late It had been prearranged and agreed to by all that in the event of an emergency before the split, the money was to be saved by whoever had possession of it at that time without any consideration of the fate of the others. The money to be divided in safety at a later date. After what he had seen and unknowing the cause or the circumstances of the others, Johnny had no choice but to save himself and the money. But yes, but I love, and speaking kind of the money not being split up, um, I do love uh, the Hayden, Hayden at the airport and trying both times to like figure out like, hey, can I get on this airplane with my luggage? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the second time they're like, oh, it's too big. And he's just like, no, but like, and it's almost like this who's on first type thing <laughs> where like they're going and it's like, oh no, I, I want to take this bag on the plane. Well, I mean, we can't really, it's, it's like, I said, can't I do that? Like, well, if we, if we get your bags that you kind of brought in earlier today, like we, we can separate. So like, no, yeah, no, no, yeah, I you want split some into that. Yeah, bag. I want this bag on the plane. And then they're asking what's in the briefcase. He's like, What's oh, just the, personal items. Yeah. Oh, like, well, let's, well, let's ensure it. How much, how much is in the, how much is what's worth in the, in the thing. It's like $2 million is like what it is. <laughs> um, and he's like, and the guy's like, 
And then the course of the supervisor, oh, does, I wonder if like, do we have time? Like, uh, well, I guess we can just reimburse you for the ticket. He's like, no, 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 I want to be on this plane. <laughs> I love when he loads up that case too. Like, there's just it's just loose bills. It's not like stacks of money. No. You know, it's just like all over the ground. And, yeah. You know when he's in the field loading it up. And speaking of that too, loading it up. Yeah, it's I, there's that. But I, I thought about like again when the, when he tosses the bag out the window and the cop gets it. I, but before that, when the cop was just like when like. <laughs> He's off somewhere, and the lady's just like, "Help! Oh, help. yeah, they're, they're killing, killing each other!" And he just drives away. Doesn't even register. Doesn't even register. I think he hears it. He's just like, "Nah, I gotta be there on time." And and her face is kind of like bewildered, of like, "Did right. he just leave?" Right. Like I just said, that, like these two people are killing each other. I love the cop character too when they're at the uh, the like the safe spot, yeah. and he's like, "Yeah, I, I, you know, the boss probably thought I was somewhere drunk, and nobody can you know convince yeah. the boss otherwise." Yeah, yeah very yeah, fifties police. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just all great character actors in this movie. Like I said, I think I think Kubrick really nailed uh, the casting of it. And it's interesting because like the Colleen, the Colleen Gray, the Faye and Johnny storyline, like isn't there a lot, right? And it, it's but it adds this layer of depth to his character because yeah, he, he's not solely doing it for himself. He's, he's not doing, solely doing yeah. it for himself. It's like he's literally like I'm doing this so like I can go off with my go off with my girlfriend, get married, and we can have a life together. Um, and again, it le- it's it, it that certainly leads to like I think one of the most memorable shots in the entire movie, and that's the the money. <laughs> flying away oh, at, the, at the airport it's, it's amazing um and what this time i know it's like he they set it up so well because like it's like when he's trying to put the money in the suitcase yeah, trying to lock it the yeah. suitcase doesn't fully lock so he has to like really kind of like finagle it to get it there so it sets up like the, something to have in the suitcase and then it, it falls apart because of the damn dog who who runs out that we've also we've set up earlier it's like oh the dog what the the dog lady she's like oh he loves seeing the planes take off or whatever yeah and the dog runs he lives the dog lives but he causes the the crash of the all the suitcases going everywhere and then two million dollars just fly off in the night sky basically and the way tornado the way hayden reacts after that is is really interesting yeah it's just like well (laughs) that's that's it (laughs) he's just like yeah i guess guess that's done it's like oh let's just leave and Mm -hmm. what's the difference yeah i'll I'll come back to that later but like but yeah it's like it, it is just like He's like, it just, it's like a, just a complete look of disappointment when yeah. that money goes away. Cause he knows like, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Like I can just, I have to leave. Um, and so, yes, but yeah, the high stuff is, I think amazing the way they do the structure. I think Hayden, when he robs them, like it's again, you see these little details that would influence a lot. It's like, you look at that robbery sequence with him putting on the clown mask and you're like, Oh, is this the dark night? Because that's what that's what Ledger led. They use clown mask when they're robbing the bank at the beginning of the Dark Knight, and it has this and and with a shotgun usually, and it has this very killing like vibes. Uh, and also with Nolan, it's like Nolan always plays with time. Is Absolutely, the thing. yeah. And you're like, I want. And he, I know he loves Kubrick. Like, how much of the killing is of uh, influence on Memento or what? Like of whatever with how he plays with time, especially in those early yeah. kind of crime movies he did. Um, there's a lot in there. I think even another reference I saw, it's the it's the the flowers with the rifle is Terminator Two. I didn't even make that connection. I read wow. it online. It's just like it looks like when, yeah, when he opens the box, he opens the box and does one of the most badass shots in the back alley. Like it's like oh, that's that's Terminator Two. 
I can't believe I didn't even put that together. It's brilliant. I, I thank the people online who who made that connection. I wish I was smart enough to do that. But it is like, I was, oh yeah, that's right. That is a very, and I don't really know other movies that have done, there's other movies that have done that well, but, yeah. it's, but it's very much like a long case, like with, yeah. with actual flowers in it, not just the gun. Um, yeah, and like every single detail of the heist is it's really smart how they do it because that's yeah. flowers is something you would bring to the you know and it yeah. sets it up like yeah. oh I'm getting them for my wife and I don't yeah. got to keep it in my locker you yeah. know I don't, well, yeah because like the one of the guys like oh I'll take it for you or whatever he's like no no no, no. I want to keep them for me yeah and I also love too it's a little moment in the locker room too it's like when um, the bartender uh, uh, Mike and then Elijah Cook Jr. George like they have that kind of like passing moment yeah. where like they're both very like on edge on edge and they both kind of scare each other but don't say anything to each other about what's about because they both they work together but not in the same kind of like uh, yeah. area of the racetrack but they're just like oh yeah this is what's gonna happen and uh it's yeah i think i think it's interesting the characters have for such a short movie the characters have very good solo moments like in solo storylines and then and very detailed characters, and then you have like the big overall moments together. Right. It's like every, you ever, everyone knows they're kind of like as an audience member, we all know what their place is in the in the heist of it, right? And we're not fully told what their moment is until it happens. It feels. And I like. think that's also one of the brilliant things about Johnny's character is he he doesn't tell anybody that's involved more than they need to know, mm-hmm. which is a smart. As as like, leader Tim of the heist, Tim gotta, Carey and Nikki has no clue what else is happening. Right? Yeah, he knows he's just got to shoot the horse, and yeah, that's it. And he gets five thousand dollars. He's five thousand, we're good. Or even even Maurice, who's the uh, who's the chess player. It's like he's like, I need you to cause distraction. Yeah, that's all. I need. It's like it's like you just need. I need you to cause distraction. This happens, and the less you know, the better. Yeah. Um, and he does say that too. I think he says it to uh, Nikki. He says this is also part of the reason is for your protection like yeah. so that if they do catch you you don't have you won't know yeah. more than that you know? and the rest of the guys don't know who those people are right they don't know and that's kind of the big centerpiece of that scene where they're planning yeah uh, what's the opening of the, of the scene is like i don't understand why why about these two other guys you know yeah. what, what are they doing what why are they involved yeah um and johnny's like no, let me take care yeah, of it. Don't worry about it. yeah johnny johnny's been around the block it's like it's interesting because like hayden and asphalt jungle is a ta- I guess a talented robber, but like not like a big time robber, if that makes sense. Like he's not the leader in the asphalt right. jungle. He's like the third guy or fourth guy they bring in, like, right. hey, we need an extra hand to do this. And it's interesting kind of seeing the characters are similar, but very different of like how Hayden carries himself in the roles. Like this his character's a little bit more confident because he is a leader than being the fourth guy in the group who's like, Oh yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing this part of the heist or whatever. Yeah. And also you can tell he's literally detailed this down to the, yeah. you know, the, the, yeah. mo- the most minuscule detail. He's Clive Owen inside. I mean, yeah. I have planned the perfect heist and he has, I think he ha- it's like, if it's not for these, it's always, it's the thing with heist movies, the, the, the perfect heist is always these variables that come into play right. that you're not expecting. It's the, it is the suitcase where like, that's the one minute thing about getting the right suitcase for this that worked or it's the dog running out in front of it's like it's the variables at the end that sometimes you 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 can push a little bit like it's like there's a point where like it's believable but then like far-fetched and this one pushed enough where like it, all those variables come at the very end where like this would like make sense right uh, and there's one part that we'll get into later that i don't fully get um for the ending but like it's it works pretty well um any other scenes that you have before we move on 
Uh, no, the other scene was the uh, the kind of setting up the heist. Uh, yeah, or, no, or the, the, them discussing yeah. the, the details of the heist. Yeah, and then again, too, like the timelines before the like, timelines, like Reservoir Dogs, no, I think also very Ocean's Eleven because Ocean's Eleven plays with time a lot, especially in Twelve, like of going yeah. back and forth of what you didn't see. You're playing from different perspectives, so yeah. Um, so, all right, so let's move on to onset life. So, as I said before, the killing was shot in Los Angeles, even though Kubrick and Harris were New York locals, and they wanted to shoot there. Uh, the issue that prevented them from that from ha- or the issue that prevented that from happening was that no racetrack would give them permission to film there because the movie dealt with crime, uh, New York and crime. But it's set in New York, right? No, set in L.A. Oh, is it? Because she yeah. does say Park Avenue, so I didn't know what that meant. Oh, I know, there's a, yeah, I know there is a Park Avenue here, though, too. Maybe it is. So maybe, maybe it is place, but it's, it feels very L.A. It does, yeah. Because you can you see get the trees. You and can the, see, and, you know, like, if, at certain areas, you can see downtown. Like, you can see like yeah. the, the city hall and stuff in the background spots. So, yeah. Um, they eventually, this is one of the parts that was not, not shot in L.A., they're eventually given access to a racetrack outside of San Francisco. Oh. Um, but because they're in Los Angeles, or because they're in Los Angeles, Harris said they expected they'd get some amazing B-roll from these Hollywood cinematographers. They sent an entire crew up to the racetrack to shoot footage of it. Like these, like several cameramen and all this while Kubrick was, I think, beginning to shoot the killing. And they brought the footage back and they watched and it was terrible. Uh, they said it was just like long wide shots of the racetrack and like nothing no detail to it so they sent their friend alexander singer who introduced them up back up to san francisco to shoot b-roll just by himself take camera shoot it by himself and that became the entire opening of the movie and the opening is something we should probably discuss because the it's like um with the music, it almost feels like a death march. Like yeah, you're leading these horses yeah. To, yeah. to death. It's, yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then that, you know, that cue comes back later yeah. at the end. So Yeah. But again, it's a great like sequence of like, it, it feels, I mean, it, it feels very, again, that docudrama aspect. It feels very documentary, like documentary, like in, yeah. in some way. And Singer had worked with Kubrick previously on like one of his early documentaries. Is yeah, like his the DP. boxer one or the the pilot? There's a the pilot, pilot one. one. The, pi- the flying the, Padre? Day of the Flight. Oh, the day of the Flight, I think that's what it's called. Um, but yeah, so Singer, uh, Singer ended up having a fairly, fairly successful career outside of this, just a, a side note, uh, as a television director, directing numerous episodes for shows like The Monkees, uh, Mission Impossible, and three different Star Trek shows, uh, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. Oh, wow. Like for decades. He, he basically started shooting... Uh, filming TV in the 60s into the 90s. So for 30 years, he was a, t- a TV director. Um, but Kubrick's troubles with B- the B-roll camera team would not be his only issue with cinematographers on this film. Uh, he originally wanted to shoot the film himself. I think we've talked about this beforehand um, outside the show. But the cinematographer Sheehan told him that he could not serve as both the, the director and the cinematographer. So they hired ve- veteran cinematographer Lucian Ballard, who had been working for over 20 years in Hollywood. Uh, Kubrick had apparently admired Ballard's previous work, but Harris said in his interview with Criterion that Kubrick and Ballard began clashing fairly quickly because Ballard did not like how specific Kubrick was when it came to setting up shots. Uh, They would have countless arguments, it seems. One in particular was when Kubrick wanted to shoot a tracking shot with a wide-angle lens and a close-up, but Ballard altered the shot by changing the lens and moving it farther back. Kubrick said he should either put it back uh, the way he wanted, or he would fire Ballard for not doing what he said. Uh, James B. Harris stated that The Killing is the only film he has ever worked on during his entire career where the director of photography refused to come to dailies because he was disgusted, disgusted by how Kubrick was shooting the movie. 
Um, and for those who know, dailies are what the director and the main crew at the end of the day meet to watch. Uh, the footage they shot that day to see like what's what they're doing right, what's working, what's not, what can they fix, to kind of look at all your kind of different aspects. And he's basically saying, I'm not showing up because this is just like, I hate the way this is shot. I'm not going to like it. Uh, the production for the film only lasted 24 days in L.A., and soon after filming commenced or film filming ended, uh, they began editing the film, and that leads us into the aftermath of the film's production. So once the film was edited, they held a test screening in Los Angeles, and guess what? People hated the nonlinear structure of the film. The audience was confused by how the film was jumping around, not knowing where they were at, and how it was telling the same thing from different perspectives. Um, starring Hayden's agent who apparently had hated the script originally walked out of the three theater and told James B. Harris that they had ruined his client because of how bad the movie was. Um, Kubrick and Harris then went back to New York and began recutting the film. They decided they were going to make it a linear film, getting rid of the multiple moments played with from different perspectives throughout the film. They soon realized that they hated it and it was even more confusing to them it being just told in a straight narrative. Uh, and they hated it because it wasn't originally what grabbed them about reading Lionel White's novel. So they went back to the original nonlinear structure. Um, and then what I think happens, the United Artists is like, let's add a narration as the compromise so like you can, we know what's going on in the movie. Um, once it was time to release the film, it seems United Artists dropped the ball. It just sat at United Artists for a while, according to James B. Harris. Then one day, they received a call from United Artists, and they were told that, that United Artists had released a movie in some massive theater on Broadway in New York, and it was greatly underperforming, and they needed a replacement movie. Um, United Artists quickly released the film in hopes of getting some money back uh, with that. Uh, Harris, they realized that it needed to start, in a, or Harris thought it was like a death toll. Like, this is going to fail, because this is a movie that needs a smaller v- release, at the beginning in smaller venues because it was a small, low budget crime drama and it needed a proper marketing campaign and word of mouth to build to making money, not just dropping in some massive theater and on Broadway in 1956 in the middle of the summer. It sounds like, um, for, uh, them to make money. Um, the film would quickly go out of theaters, um, afterwards. It seems, I don't know if they tried to make it later. I've also heard reports that they paired it with, it was the second feature of a double feature. Yeah, uh, I was wondering if they if they sold this as a B movie or yeah, not. Yeah, the Pirate Bandinos, which was a Robert Mitchum, I think war movie about the Mexican Revolution, <laughs> and it was the B B picture for that. It's I don't know like if that was because because I read that like that was fairly successful, but the killing wasn't successful. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but even though it was a financial disappointment, it would be a critical success. Uh, the best review would come from Time Magazine saying at 27 writer director Stanley Kubrick and his third full-length picture has shown more audacity with dialogue and camera than Hollywood has seen since Orson Welles. That's a glowing review. Yeah. And so it's interesting to look at this now because it draws comparisons to uh, Soderbergh's Out of Sight, which we covered earlier, where it was like a movie that didn't make money at the box office was given a rush release to make up for another film's, a, a film that they messed up because with Out of Sight was Meet Joe Black. This one, this, this other film that didn't do well, apparently, whatever it may be, um, and it's to cover their losses or something, doesn't do well, but has a critical success as the launching pad for Kubrick and James B. Harris as a collaborative team yeah. uh, for their career. Because soon, Kirk Douglas would see the movie and was like, I want to, I want this guy to direct Pads of Glory. Um, Brando saw a movie, this is a whole separate thing, but Brando saw the movie and was like, I want this guy to direct this 
Western I'm going to make, which ends up being One Eye Jacks. One Eye Jacks. No way. That Brando ends up directing instead of Kubrick because Kubrick's like, yeah, I don't want to do this. Like, I see you want to direct this more than I do. I don't want to compete with it. Um, it would have been cool to see a Kubrick Western, though. It would have been. Especially with Brando. Um, but, and Pads of Glory, the one that they, they did next, that would be Kubrick and Harris's next collaboration. Um, they would then finish, they had finished their collaboration together in 1962 with Kubrick's adaptation of Lolita. And Harris said the reason why I broke up was that Harris was motivated to want to direct movies after seeing Kubrick direct. Harris said Kubrick made it look easy. <laughs> um, Kubrick encouraged Harris to try his hand at directing because he had been such a good collaborator on their three films together. He believed that Harris had more talent than most of the people in California, as he told Harris when he was leaving. Um, but he told him that this business can be lonely and sticking together might be smart because they would share both the successes and failures together. From Killer's Kiss in 1955 to Lolita in 1962, Kubrick would release a total of five films in seven years, with Harris uh, serving as producer on three of them. It would be Kubrick's most productive period because afterwards his films became grander, but they were released at a less frequent pace. And for the rest of his films, Kubrick would serve as the sole lead producer on his films, which makes me wonder, and it's crazy to say, would Kubrick have benefited from having Harris involved the rest of his career? Because both career-wise and personally, like in his personal life, because it's an interesting what if, because like Kubrick only made in that same amount of time period, like the max he made was like two or three films. Yeah. If that. And I know he's a younger, so he's going to like have a faster right. thing, but like five films in seven or five films in seven years is a pretty big leap that when one of them is like Spartacus and Lolita, like they're big films. Right. And then after Dr. Strange love, which is 64, like, Clockwork Orange is another like uh, seven years later or something. Like it's, yeah. it's a while. Or I'm sorry, 2001 is 68. So it's like four years later, 71 to Clockwork Orange. And then like, it's like his gap's getting bigger. So I wonder like if he had, he was doing everything. Is, would he have benefited having like a producer on hand to be like his developing guy mm-hmm. to set up the projects he wanted to do next. I think he would have trusted Harris more, but I think I think, so I think part of the reason was also what happened with Spartacus was like he wanted to be sole producer because he wanted to have complete control, you know. I know, but like, but, but Spartacus is pre Lolita, so yeah. it's, it's like it's like he I feel like he trusted Harris that came up together, right, right. Because Harris is still alive, by the way. He's ninety three right now. He's, oh no way. He's still alive. So you wonder like, did he did he actually direct anything? Has he, he did yeah. direct several movies. Yeah. He directed um a movie. He, Two James Woods movies of all things. Oh, um, oh. Um, what era James Woods? Eighties. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, movie called Cop. Fast Talking. He did. He did one, four movies. He directed. Wow. He produced the Black Dahlia. Oh, the uh, the the Palma. Yeah, he's oh, one wow. of the producers. I don't know if he's the main producer. But he's a producer on that was 06. Um, but yeah, it just makes it makes me wonder. It's like, how do you top one of the biggest careers of all time? It's it's very hard to, to say, but I think there's so much like we talked about with Eyes Wide Shut, like was Kubrick stressed out from Eyes Wide Shut? Because he's he's doing like three different roles or four different roles sometimes like, with, with being DP sometimes, but like he's doing all these roles and you wonder like, did he need, because he had a good relationship with, with his longtime assistant, Leon Vitale, as I said before, and he had that kind of person to kind of, uh, to... Uh, kind of partner to like discuss stuff with and bounce ideas off with, but like also it helped him personally. And I wonder would Harris, would Kubrick have benefited from having Harris there through at least some of the films? Because Kubrick's big thing was that it took him so long to develop movies yeah. and sometimes find money. 
and and have the relationship with studios. Sometimes it would have been good to have that like one partner to be that person to handle that so you right. can worry about the creative stuff. So I'm just I just wonder. It's interesting. It's like the, does he make more movies with with that with with Harris yeah. involved? And yeah, it probably would have been more productive. Yeah. yeah. And not just saying all this would have been of Harris, but like would he have like gone back to him a few more times sure. here and there? Interesting because when you look at a lot of great directors nowadays, it's like a lot of them have a producing partner that that's their main job yeah. is producing. Well, I mean, that's movies. a lot of hats to, to take care of, especially exactly. with the scale of, yeah, of Kubrick's later films. Like. And how, and how he kind of does everything on the, like on the move. It's like, it's like, he's not, he's kind of figuring things out in the moment with his stuff that he's directing. So yeah. Do you have that guy who understands the business side and, and, and the kind of handling of the studios? So he so Kubrick doesn't have to, um, and Kubrick can just focus on creative aspects of it. And and does that bog him down for those decades? Of, I don't know. It's just interesting because every time when you look at a lot of his movies is that like Kubrick works with someone and they just like hate working with him. Like that makes like, like a writer yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. And it just feels like Harris did three movies with him. Essentially was kind of involved in fear and desire to some extent trying to get it. Like he, he, he was around when Killer's Kiss is being released. He's there in the, so he's there when Kubrick is starting off. And you wonder if there's like, and so, and when hearing him like talk to them about Harris saying like this, this business can get lonely and sticking together might be smart uh, because we can share the success, the highs and the lows. Right. It'll, it might be better for us. And they never came back to doing stuff again. So it's just an interesting kind of. Did they stay in contact though? Did you see anything? I didn't read anything on that. Yeah. I assume they probably, I mean, I mean, if they did, I don't know how much because Kubrick goes to London. Right. Not long after this. Yeah. Um, and shoots all of his films there pretty much overseas. So I don't know how much they, he never flew back. So unless right. Harris is going over to England, not a lot. And that communication is not as easy over like yeah. at that point in time. So you just wonder what could happen. Um, but yeah, so let's move on to what worked. So what worked about this film, David? I think what, like what we were talking about earlier, the pace really works. Yeah, I mean, it amazing. almost feels like you, you, you couldn't release this movie nowadays, but it's like so many screenplays try to get this, this efficient and they're just not. It's just they yep. get bogged down with filler, and this movie's just like straight to the meat, man. We gotta explain more. We gotta yeah. get more. We right. Gotta, it's like it's sometimes sometimes saying the least about a character is the greatest thing about describing a character. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. I mean, they like they all have simple motivations, but yeah. you get why they're involved yeah. in this. Yeah. Um. So that, that I think that really works. I think visually it really works. Um. Mm-hmm. You know, both framing wise, camera movement, lighting. Yeah. It's all they like. A lot of people say Paz of Glory is where Kubrick really came into his own, but I'd argue the killing is really where I he came to his own. I mean, it's it's it's. Killing is 56, Path of Glory 57. Yeah. It's such an interesting one-two punch. I mean, again, you go from Killer's Kiss 55, Killing 56, Path of Glory 57 is a crazy revol- uh, evolution for sure for a filmmaker. Like to go especially from, that early in your career and that young at that young because he's so he's 27 here and 28 for Paths of Glory, um, and that means he would be 31 for Spartacus. I think wow. is what it is. And Spartacus is a big film. It is. Um, so yeah. Um, but yeah, I think cast cast is great. Um, direction's great. Um, I think the the locations, I think, like I think sometimes And there's very few locations when you think about it. No, it's just yeah, yeah it's just like whatever apartment or house they're in, uh the um, track. The track, or not even the, the track. The, 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 the room where you get the tickets. The room where you get the bar, tickets yeah. in the bar, and then kind of the, the, back, the area. back area and the locker room. Like it's it's not, it's a again, it's a very minimal movie and then that place that he goes in um like the place he rents the i guess it's a bungalow or what would you yeah, call it's it a bungalow like, yeah. yeah it's it's, like, it's yeah it's very much like a like a bungalow like apartment yeah kind of like almost i feel like a hotel in a way right. too um but yeah no and then and then the airport yeah 
which I think is actually LAX is the thing. Is actually, it really I think LAX? it was actually wow. LAX from what I read. Um, so yeah, did anything not work for you? Uh, so we did talk about the narration. I, I like I said, I, I think at moments it's interesting because it does feel novelistic, but yeah. I think sometimes it beats you over the head a little too much. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but again, we're looking at it like nowadays compared to the '50s, so I, I, it, that's a hard uh, distinction. Yeah. But then my other thing is the more the Maurice fight. We were talking about this earlier. He does do some like wrestling, wrestling moves. moves. So I do I do question was it meant to be comedic at the time? Yeah, interesting. Or you know, because it does seem to like if I saw this with the audience, I feel like it would play comedic. Yeah, it feels like something out of Doctor Strange Love. You know, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is a war room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's literally lifted the dude up, spinning him around, and like like you know, yeah. backbreaker. And he takes on his shirt him, off. He's like, yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. a Hulk basically. Um, yeah. So yeah, so but it's not that that didn't work for me. I just think tonally, it, it makes me question what what they were going for and yeah. how it would play with an audience. Now, yeah, nowadays, yeah. That's or fair. even in the fifties, because that fight goes on for a long time. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's for, not like they live le- level. Yeah, length, but, but it's yeah. like for this movie, it's like it should be like pretty quick. Like, yeah, fight, fight, fight. Cops, cool. I'm walking in the back door. It's yeah. like they're holding it for a while. Well, um, they just keep sitting them like one on one, and, yeah. then, and then they all try to grab. I'll try to grab him, and Hayden's just kind of like watching. Yeah, watching go down. It's like cool. I'm, I'm gonna go in the back now and go steal his money. Um, uh, what about you? That's those that narration was me. Like, I, I think narration, like it doesn't feel in the moment. I was like, oh, this feels kind of odd. Like, do we need this? Like, can you tell the story without that narration? And I think, like, besides a few exposition things, like you can get away with not having it. Like, I get the idea is like, oh, it's like it's ah, oh, but an hour before he was doing this. It's like it's it's trying to be like, how can we explain the time jump? Right without without like because you can't they're, they're not they don't know how to show, he didn't they don't feel like he showed it well enough and i do wonder it's like what happens when you don't know that that if you don't have that narration there about the time does that land as well Especially i think certain moments i think certain moments would because yeah. you literally see it from the multiple like yeah, yeah. you see once you're in hayden's perspective you see yeah moments that already had happened in the That's other fair. perspectives but i think i think no i think you're right because it's like when they're outside of the racetrack they're by themselves so you don't know where that's technically where happening in the, in the timeline story. yeah so, so that is a fair point and with if it was because you can do a different way with this if it was in color if it was a color film where they actually shot in color not black and white you could may do some visuals to change it up at least if it was a more modern oh, like day the thing. hour of the day, like there's yeah, that, yeah. but like you could, you could, I mean, it's like you think of like um, uh, Ocean's Eleven, where it's like they had this, the the subtitle coming of like, oh, right, right, of like uh, the the city they're in or whatever. You could do that, um, which I don't know was really done as much at that moment in time. I'm not sure, or it's just you shoot like it's or it's like traffic, where like to like it's a different <laughs> visual different, style yeah. to know where you're at in right. the story or where you're at lo- lo- location wise. I don't know. Um, but those, yeah, it's two things that kind of don't fully work, but could work. It says, yeah. So I don't even just cast. So, like, so we said Sinatra was a possibility. Another actor that, that came up was Victor Mature, uh, who had been in such movies as My Darling Clementine, Kiss of Death, and The Robe. Oh. Um, he'd been in several, he'd been in movies for a long time at this point. I think he was probably in his. Is this for the Hayden role? Or for, is this- for Hayden's oh. role. Because because basically, United Arts is like, oh, we only like Hayden. Um. We have Victor Mature that, that wants to do it, but he's not available for another 18 months, is what they told him. And they're just like, we want Hayden. And they're like, okay, well, we're not going to give you as much money because Victor Mature is a bigger star, which I think is funny because I think Strong Hayden has probably been in 
bigger films when looking back on it. Yeah. But Mature was probably a bigger star in the moment because you of, mean at that time or over the entire career? Over his entire career. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, he's in The Godfather. He's in you know, yeah, Doctor he, Strange. Level. It's Asphalt Jungle. Yeah. It's Doctor Strange. It's The Long Goodbye. Like he's oh, yeah, in, he's goodbye. in bigger bigger yeah. films that have I guess stand stood the test of time. All right, film facts. Um, another tower for the film besides Clean Break and The Killing was Bed of Fear. That was another one. Bed of Fear? Bed of Fear, yeah. Uh, in the original novel, Johnny Clay actually dies in the end. Oh, do you see him get shot by the cops? Or? I think so, yeah. but but James Harris suggested having him stay alive, and he suggested the memorable image of the money flying away. Yeah. That was Harris's idea. Um, it is a very memorable. It was the first film that was shot with a professional crew, or it was the first film that Kubrick had shot with a professional cast and crew. Uh, it was also the last one that Kubrick shot that was fully in the United States. Every other film after this was shot elsewhere or partly elsewhere. I because think. where was Spartacus shot? It was Spartacus Spain? Was in Spain, I believe, but they shot some stuff on sets in and Universal Studios. Oh wow! But that's but this is the last one, so it's like first professional, first shot film with a professional crew, last shot in the U.S. And he made movies for another forty years, yeah. which is crazy. That this is the last one. It's like his third movie, and he never shot fully in the U.S. again. Um, Let's see. Uh, oh, last thing. The film was the acting debut of famous comedian Rodney Dangerfield. Where was he? Rodney Dangerfield is an extra in the bar fight scene. No way. I, I got to go back and replay it. But yeah, he, he, he was, it was 1956. So Dangerfield would have been, he didn't, he, he wasn't in a movie until 15 years later. Wow. He did like, I think two TV movies. So he would have been 35. Wow. When this came out, I think they said that you can see his like double take at one point during the bar oh, during fight. The fight? Yeah. It was the end of the bar. So that's, that's the big thing. It was his acting debut. Um, I do know the guy that comes in with Val um, at the end that the other guy that's uh-huh. like, is he a gunman? That's sure? the guy that plays Lloyd in the shining. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Because I was like, I was trying to figure out who uh, the actor for Val, or I was trying to figure out the character's name, and I and then I clicked him, and I was like, oh wait, that's Lloyd. What? It's yeah. so strange. I mean, it's interesting because like, yeah, he he used a few like Sterling Hayden pops up again, Doctor Strange Love, and Kubrick didn't use a lot of actors more than once. Is the he, thing? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's 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 a handful. It's like it's Peter Sellers, it's Sterling Hayden. Like it's not, and all, even that's just this early part early of the, stuff. Yeah. Kirk Douglas twice, like, and they yeah. hate each other. I think by Spartacus, yeah. yeah. Um, so he didn't, he didn't use a lot of people multiple times. Um, so yeah. So, all right. Story questions. How does, oh, I'm just more like, and this might, this might be make sense to some people and it, I might just be stupid, but like at the very end, that airplane, that, that airplane manager or the, the, the airline manager, like really gets the idea of what happened pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. He gets the phone call and he's like. Then yeah. he goes runs. Oh, wait, wait, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. He said, Oh, you're leaving. Why are you leaving? And it's like, oh wait, there's a bag of money. Oh, I felt two minutes. Oh, that was that guy. Let's get the cops. This yeah. is the heist. It's like it's like it's just it's a lot of jumps at the very end. Yeah, because like, he says, what does he, he say find? when he's on the phone? He's like, on the tarmac or something. Yeah. Like, he's like he's like so obviously he's being explained yeah. that the money came yeah. out, but how does he assume that that's yeah. his bag? You're yeah. telling me Hayden can't Hayden and, and Faye cannot walk from that desk to a taxi. Yeah. In a faster time, him getting a call about money on the tarmac, realizing what's going yeah. on, going to the cops. Yeah. That just feels... Well, they do pass him, so I wonder if that's kind of setting it up. Like it when, is. They, yeah, so that he's like, he oh, it puts two and two they together. Did their be- they did yeah, their best of yeah. like trying to... Like, that is a jump, though. It, it, it is. I was just like, how the hell does he know this that quickly? Like, that, 
that guy's really smart. And like, cause he has like, Oh, I, yeah, there was a robbery that happened today. And, and like, here's the thing. It's like, I, maybe I'm just saying like nowadays with me, it's like something can happen in LA and I might not find out for days. Oh yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? It's yeah. like, how does this guy, all, I mean, maybe it's just different. Cause it was, it was, it was a smaller time with, in terms of people and everyone was more listening to the radio and things like that. And, but I don't know how news traveled that fast. So it's like, Oh yeah, that's that two million dollars that were stolen on the racetrack today. Right, that must be the guy. It's like I feel, I feel like I don't know. That's the question too. Is it better? It might just be a production code thing that he had to get caught. But like, is it better that he gets caught or that he loses the money and he gets away? Oh, like a better pun, like a better punishment. Like, or like, is what, it more like, what's yeah, ending? what's the more interesting ending? It's like what's the more interesting ending? It's like because that's one thing that always kind of bothers me too. It's like it's yeah. the, the the last shot is like them approaching him and then approaching at the, at the end. end yeah, and you're yeah. like, that's kind of quick. It's yeah. like, is it better? Like bad version is like, is it better? You see him driving off in the distance and the money flying up in the air. Like yeah, yeah. Is it just like I can't have, or even just his face, like of realization that I lost it all? Like yeah. I had it, I had yeah. it. It was almost on the plane, but I like, is got- it is it Ocean's Eleven, the original Ocean's Eleven? When, spoiler alert! When they're like walking away and like the money's been burned up, right? Like I don't know. It's like what's the best? It's like it's like does he have to be arrested to deal with punishment? Sure. But are we ignoring the Hays Code? Because I feel like that is a Hays Code choice. It probably yeah, is. Yeah. It probably they, is. don't. They have to technically get. Caught, they have yeah, to have yeah. some comeuppance. They have yeah. to die or get caught. Is kind of the thing. It's it's like nowadays you have like the one guy that you like kind of gets away sometimes. Right. But I'm just like if if that's made today, yeah. Like, is it a better ending of of him just like we lost it all or something? And it's him and his wife because it's like does is it clear that his wife know, or his girlfriend knows what's going on? Is Faye aware that he's doing all this, or she just like doesn't ask because she knows he's involved? Yeah, he's in pretty stuff. vague in that he's pretty vague. beginning in the yeah. beginning scene with them. So I wonder if like she does, but I mean, she knew he went to prison. Like she, she had to know what he went like, to prison. But for. does she know he's robbing two million dollars from a racetrack? Oh, probably not the amount. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I just think I think she's like aware he's doing something, yeah. and, and he's. But also, I mean, he was supposed to split it too. Like he wasn't supposed to have all That's all fair. two million. That's yeah. fair. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. If he if he if he splits it. And because he had already paid, well, he still had to owe paid Nikki another twenty five hundred, but he, Nikki died, so that he could have kept that. I don't think Nikki dies. I think Nikki just gets shot. Like, oh, you I, don't think, think he's I dead? think I think they say like, oh, they've apprehended one of the men who got oh, shot. Oh, did they say apprehended? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, and the radio because I thought he always died, but yeah, I think yeah. they say he just got he got shot and couldn't go. And again, I love I love I mean, that he just gets shot once, so like you'd think, but yeah, yeah he'd and, be able to. Survive. And I love it's the horseshoe that gets him. It's, yeah, yeah, he was he was he was an asshole to. I do love that shot when it's just holding on the horseshoe yeah. and the air coming out of the time. He's 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 an ass to the to the attendant um yeah and what's what's the actor's name um yeah james edwards yeah james edwards well he's nice to him so they can get into the parking lot he's but then nice when he starts first, to interrupt then he gets then he gets, then go, he gets he just gets to the race car he yeah. gets racist um but yeah he was in the st- oh he's great in the steel helmet oh yeah the steel, sam fuller film. yeah he's yeah, yeah, amazing yeah. in that movie I, I, I knew i recognized him i didn't know what yeah, i seen. Yeah, sorry i just forgot i was like he's yeah. amazing shout out steel helmet for anyone it's a good film go watch that movie it's a it's a good movie just also like one of the few movies like about the korean war it feels yeah. like it's and it's re- very dark for it's, its very time. dark for its time and i think it's a movie that you could easily like find a way to redo in some way today yeah and another really interestingly shot film for the yeah, time as well the time yeah. as well but it's also it's a very diverse film for the time for sure because he's talking about like race and but not just race like with 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 black characters but uh but asian characters because they're in korea and it's a, it's 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 a fantastic film yeah. so go check it out um 
But no, yeah. So it's and, I, and now I'm like oh, he probably saw him still helmet, and that's why I cast him in this movie as the parking attendant. But yeah, it's like yeah. Um, how long has Faye and Sherry been having their thing? I'm sorry, Val and Sherry having their thing. That is curious. Um, because she says she loves him, which is uh, yeah. Yeah, does she actually love him? Yeah, yeah. Is she is she just mani- manipulating him too? Yeah, who, yeah. You know how far does that actually go? You know. Yeah. Uh, who knows? I don't know. But it does seem she's somewhat jealous when she, he keeps, like she said, she called him the day before and he, oh, yeah. he didn't answer. So it does seem there's some. I got, je- I got things to do, baby. <laughs> I uh, was at the movies. I was at the movies. What do you want me to do? I think he says goofing off at the movies. I still love him yeah. calling George a meatball. I, I, that's just the greatest insult. Where's the meatball? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then she says meatball with gravy. I, yeah. don't, I don't know what that means. Oh, God. <laughs> that's really a weird. Let's bring that back. Let's make that a thing. Um, all right, awards. The Beatrice Strait Award actor, actress, Lemon Saints, it kills it. Elijah Cook Jr. I think he's supporting. Too many? Too I many? think he's okay. supporting. Uh, in that case, then I would give it to I'd give it Mike. to, to Nick. Oh, to Nikki. I'd give it to Nikki. Uh, I don't know the actor. Tim Dakiri. Yeah, yeah. Tim I, I agree. Tim Dakiri yeah. is my pick because Tim Dakiri. He's so odd. Like he's really like he's such an odd actor. And like I know Tarantino loved him because I think he auditioned for. One of the roles on is that the old man Reservoir Dogs. Oh no was. way! That'd have been interesting. Yeah, and, and he's like he he's like didn't fit, but like I think I think he gets a special thanks in like the script or something wow. or the movie because Tarantino loved him. And Timothy Carey, you just look at his like filmography, like so yeah, <laughs> Wikipedia has him best known for portraying manic or violent characters who are driven to extremes. <laughs> um, he was an ace in the hole. Oh, yeah. I, I think I think it's a minor role, but. He ends up doing Pads of Glory as well, I think. Um, I haven't seen that one in a while. Yeah. I need to rewatch, revisit that one. Apparently, he was dis- disruptive. Oh, no, he was fired. So, side thing, I guess, was reportedly disruptive and tried to draw more attention to his character, to his behavior in a scene. Uh, they had to do 57 takes. Um, oh. Carrie, wow. Carrie then faked his own kidnapping to generate personal publicity which prompted Kubrick and producer James B. Harris to fire him oh wow and so this is from Paz, 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 Paz of Glory so and that and apparently like his character just kind of disappears in the movie uh or you don't see us I think it's like maybe some sort of scene that he's in the in his final scene they had to shoot use a double because he was fired from the film because wow well, that's crazy I did not know that but yeah, he he worked from the 50, 51 to 85 but yeah he he, he was also in one-eyed jacks as well um, but he interesting character, interesting, yeah. interesting actor. He has a very interesting uh, beha- behavior in movies. So I, I would go with Tim Carey as well for Beatrice Drape. And there's one more thing. Suppose by accident you do get picked up. What are you done? You shot a horse. It isn't first degree murder. In fact, it isn't even murder. In fact, I don't know what it is. But the chances are the best they could get you on would be uh, inciting a riot or shooting horses out of season or something like right. that. Well, you put it down. Could you make it sound real simple? You know, pops. Five thousand bucks for rubbing out a horse. Okay, Pops, how do I get it? 2500 a day, 2500 a day after the race. Okay, crazy. Now tell me something. What's your angle, John? <laughs> They'll probably call the race off, huh? And they won't pay off any of the best. Yeah, Come on. Maybe. But what my angle is is my business. And Nicky, 5000 bucks is a lot of dough, and that's what I'm paying it for, so nobody has to know my business. All right, John. I got no, no troubles with you. I'm with you. Annie Potts, X Factor, Award sporting actor, actress that is the most memorable. Yeah, Elijah Cook Jr. Yeah, that's who I was gonna go for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just think I think I think the again it's the same when he goes back to kill to kill Sherry, and is, he still hasn't like realized like yeah, like he th- that there's no salvaging this. You no, know? yeah, no, no. I think it's great. I think yeah. it's fantastic in the whole thing. Um, and like I said, it's just something he's doing with his eyes. Like it's got this manic yeah, energy, but manic it's not energy, like not, over the top. Yeah, it's you know? not Timothy Carey. Right, right. Yeah. 
Um, it's just, it's more just, it's, it's it, subdued. It's like a, it's something. Yeah. It's like something waiting to explode. He's in a you know? trance. It feels yeah. like, especially in that last part. Yeah, maybe it's like trance. shock. You know. What did Johnny do to you? Do I already told you? Just asked me some questions and made sure it was all right for me to leave. Sure, he did. Did Johnny try anything? What George? What a terrible thing for you to ask. I was pretty sure. I don't that think you you'd better say anymore. Then why did you come over there tonight, Sherry? It wasn't for the reason you said. It was for the reason you said, George. You said it yourself. I was just trying to make an alibi for you. I was afraid those guys would kill you. You know that I wouldn't look at another woman. There wouldn't be any women chasing after a guy like me. Oh, let's drop it, George. You put words in my mouth and then you say they're not true. I told you exactly what happened. The Gene Hackman MVP award person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. Most Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, I think it's him. Um, Hayden's great, but I think it's that. I mean, you can argue James B. Harris in a way too, because they're kind of. But I think Kubrick, because the visuals and all that. And they both had something to prove. I think at this point. I think they yeah. both did. I think they're. But I think because Harris said. And Harris put own, his own money into it too. He put, 80, he put, he put fifty thousand. I'm sorry, eighty thousand dollars of his own money, fifty thousand from his father. They took out on loan. Because he said, like, I knew that if we didn't get the money the movie deserved, it wouldn't be as big for us, like, career-wise. Sure. Like, we need to kind of, we need to, like, make a big splash. And he's like, we need to make it memorable, and we need more money for that. We can't do it with $200,000. And so that's why he went off and got money. He said, like, that's why I say, would, would Kubrick have been better having him? Is that he said, the one thing I knew was how to get money for movies. And that's why I did to help. Kubrick out in those early films and you're like would that have been beneficial later on in his career but no I think Kubrick both both young guys I think they 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 were only I think I think Kubrick was eight days older than oh, Harris no like they're they're the same exact exact age both from New York but I think they I think Kubrick probably was like I mean it feels like Harris knew how talented Kubrick was and it was just basically giving him prop, prop propping him up to give him like the opportunity to work and it doesn't seem like again they made three films it doesn't like they they conflict in any way yeah uh throughout but no i think kubrick wins it just just based on visually his cast the casting that i think gets it and harris said like is he cast basically the entire movie the Kubrick cast the entire movie the cast is amazing visuals are amazing uh committing to the nonlinear structure is I, i said ingenious and i think really influences not just the genre, but several filmmakers we talked about later. Um, and that comes from the books. But I think, again, it, it, it lies so heavily with the director making all those choices. Sure. And I think Kubrick makes all those choices and they work. And the ones that don't are the narration the studio wants. So it's like, it's like, it's, which he didn't even want. He yeah. didn't want. So it's like, yeah. So I think he, he's the one that kind of takes it for me. So I guess we, we agree. You don't understand me, Johnny. You don't know me very well. I know you like a book. You're a no-good, nosy little tramp. You'd sell out your own mother for a piece of fudge, but you're smart along with it. Smart enough to know when to sell and when to sit tight, and you know you better sit tight in this case. I do. You heard me. You like money. You got a great big dollar sign there where most women have a heart. So play it smart. Stay in character and you'll have money. Plenty of it. George will have it. He'll blow it all on you, probably by himself, a five-cent cigar. Mm, You don't know me very well, Johnny. I wouldn't think of letting George throw his money away on cigars. Isn't there a big if in there somewhere? Yeah, there's a couple of them. If you're smart, if you keep your trap shut and don't nose around anymore, you'll have money. You'll be loaded with a capital L, but if you don't, there'll be nothing. We'll forget the whole thing. Nothing will happen and you won't have a penny. 
I wouldn't like that. And frail as I am, I'd much prefer to be loaded. Well, I think we understand each other. No, beat it. All right, final questions. The big question you're prepared for, if this film was remade today, who do you cast? Yeah, how far are we going? Just the main five? How many, yeah, how many do you have? How many have? Uh, I mean, I could keep going. I did like, uh, well, I'll just start. Okay, so for, for, for Johnny Clay, it's Johnny Clay, right? Yeah, oh, Johnny, sorry. Do, do him last. Get, do him last. Yeah, go, go right. with the lesser ones. Oh, so for Nikki, I said Scoot McNary. Scoot McNary is good. Yeah. That's a good one, too. Um, I, like, I like Scoot for that one. For Maurice, I said Dave Batista, but I don't know if he would actually do it for that minor of a role, you know? Oh, Especially with good, where he's at right now. I, yeah, um, yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good wrestling. I wonder who would be a good. And yeah, man. I don't know wrestlers that are still man, wrestling. If it, was, if it was like 10 years ago, this, this is just showing my wrestling thing. Kane, who's now the mayor of Knoxville. Is he really? He's, yeah. I just know him from that horror movie. What's the Ceno? Yeah, Ceno Evil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Kane, I feel like Kane would actually have been a perfect choice. Yeah. Because Kane's a, 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 like, apparently like really intelligent. I mean, well, I won't go into politics here, but like is apparently like, was well educated. Educated, educated. educated is, is the thing. Um, but, uh, Everyone said that he was one of the more educated wrestlers. Like he's like when you when you go back and watch footage, like of like behind the scenes, he's like always like on the computer doing stuff or like reading a book is what it looked yeah. like. Um. So he and he has a good look, bald, very big, similar look, yeah, very similar look to him. So he'd have been an interesting one. Um. For Val, I had Zac Efron. I was trying to pick like a younger dude that kind of you know could. Okay, yeah, but I guess it does depend on okay. who's Sherry, who I had as Kate Blanchett, because she definitely showed her manipulative oh, uh, prowess in, in, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. Nightmare Alley. Yes. Um, and then uh, Mike, uh, who's the the bar guy, the bartender. Uh, I had John Goodman. Uh, John Goodman, yeah, that's a good that's a good pick then, for for uh, George yeah. George uh, Petey, You know who Elijah Cook Jr. plays. Yeah. I had Willem Dafoe. I guess go back to the night. He might be a little too old at this point, yeah, but going yeah. back to the Nightmare Alley, and I think he has similar who's, energy. Yeah, yeah. Let's see who's a. Uh, I'm trying to think of like a smaller. Yeah, and that's the other thing you'd have to have. I mean, I guess he has more scenes than most of the other supporting Man, guys. You know, yeah. be, it had to be good, actually. Toby Jones. Uh, what, what's Toby? Oh, oh the, Toby Jones from uh, um, he's he's uh, I'm trying to think, not just Marvel stuff, but he's in Captain America, uh, one and two. He's in he's plays Capote in Infamous. He's in Bur- Barbarian, uh, Barbarian Sound oh, Studio. Oh, okay. Oh, that that guy. That oh, yeah, guy. yeah. Oh, he'd be perfect. I think he'd be perfect yeah, for yeah. that. You're right, actually. Yeah, he'd be perfect. Yeah, a little bit smaller. Has smaller yeah. eyes. I think he, smaller frame. Smaller frame. Yeah. I think could be like a guy who seems like meek, but could but could also be powerful if he wants yeah. to be. But he didn't. Like he failed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like Toby Jones. Okay. And I didn't know where to put this guy, but I wanted to put him in here. So this was the uh, what? the cop's name's Randy, right? I think so. Yes, Randy. So Randy, uh, John Bernthal. Yeah, I just didn't know where to put him, and I want him in in a in a heist movie like Bernthal's good for that. Yeah. Bernthal would not be terrible for Nikki either, actually. Oh yeah, yeah. He kind of played that like, not that exact role, but a similar role in Wolf of Wall Street. I'd say. Yeah, like a minor kind of. Like, yeah. Um, he also wouldn't be a bad Val. You could kind of. Oh yeah, him, you yeah. Could yeah. Put he him could anywhere. put him as Val. You could put yeah. him as Val. Yeah. Uh, for Marv, uh, I had Christopher Walken. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's not and a bad then, pick. And then, of course, for Johnny Clay, I had John Hamm. Interesting. Okay. John Hamm. Yeah, he's 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 a guy. He's he's played. 
I don't know if he's been in a heist movie. He's been in a heist movie. He's in the yeah. town. Yeah, but he's on but the he's, other side he's of the law. He's the other side of the law. We'll talk about that next And week. then, you know, Baby Driver, he's a criminal, but he's not yeah, really. You're right. I mean, yeah. he is a, I mean, he is yeah, a right, team, right. but. Also, but, John Bernthal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. John uh, <laughs> um, uh, Do we have, or who did you say was Faye? Did you have a Faye? I, did, I didn't do Faye. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't know who would be John Ham's, uh, you know, who would be John Ham's girl. Um, um, be John Ham's girl. John Ham's girl. Um. Who would get more more screen time? Sure. In, Nowadays, yeah. In the, in the current thing, deservedly yeah. so. Um, I don't want to say Rooney Mara because she was just in Nightmare Alley. Yeah, um, like, we don't want to cast Nightmare Alley over and over again. Um, maybe Kate Mara instead of Rooney Mara. Oh, interesting. Maybe yeah. Kate Mara. I could see that. Yeah, I could see her playing that character. Yeah, I'm 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 cool with Kate Mara in that role. So we got Kate Mara as Faye. We have. Uh, John Bernthal is one of three characters. Um, no, but as, as, as say Randy, um, you have Efron as Val. Um, you have John Hamm as Johnny. You have uh, uh, Toby Jones as uh, George. George. Yeah. Kate Blanchett as Sherry. I wonder if you should go younger with her. Yeah, I, that was the other thing too. It's like she she not she, younger, but like yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I just feel like yeah. I wonder. I wonder if like oh no, maybe maybe it works. I think maybe it works. So then you have this whole interplay of like with Zac Efron like right being this younger guy she's seeing on the side. Right. Okay. Okay. And I feel like I the, that guy is supposed to be younger in the, in the guy that's cast yeah. in this, yeah. but Bam. I don't know. It doesn't necessarily always play that way. But yeah, he yeah. was. So let's see. He was. He was big later. He didn't send that movie. Or he was yeah, he has a very recognizable face. But he was in a show called Ben Casey. He was a doctor oh, in the God. 60s. A, a show on the doctor. So he was 28 when they did the movie. Oh, wow. So like, he was even older than Kubrick. That's wild. And he was 28, give or take. She was 37. Okay. Okay. Check. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, Who did you have? I didn't have anyone. Oh, I, was, oh. I was wanting to see what you did. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Um, and yeah, all good, all good people. I like it. Um, does this film fit with any other genres? I mean, I think we've said noir, but stylistically, noir. Yeah. yeah. Um, crime thriller is kind of like, but heist movies, I feel like generally fall into the crime. I think it's, thriller. I think it's, yeah. Yeah, I think it's yeah. heist. I think it's a noir yeah. heist and that's, yeah. that's kind of all it can be. Right. Um, so yeah. And then how does this film fit with the heist genre? So I think. We talked about this with character stuff and story trips. Like it's the idea of the perfect heist. It's the trope of robbing a big event, which we don't establish. Is it one of the, it's one of the first ones, at least one of the more influential ones Yeah, with robbing a racetrack in the middle of a big, what, what everyone's there. Um, and then it's the, the Johnny being the guy who wants to go off and retire with the, with his, with his girlfriend and get married to her and have a, the American dream essentially. Um, so it definitely follows all the kind of type the tropes and character types and all that. And I think, yeah, I think it's, it's one of the more influential ones. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's in terms of American stuff. It's like, I wonder, is it this or asphalt jungle? Which one's the more influential because they're, because I wonder if, if you could argue this one, because asphalt jungles also feels like a take on Rafifi. Sure. And the killing feels almost like a, different thing in a way it feels like it's yeah. a, it's an offshoot of the asphalt jungle yeah that's a fair that's a fair point so um but both stars starring hayden and it's crazy that he's he has what year was asphalt jungle 50 1950 oh, okay, so okay. six years before um it's crazy that starring hayden's in two 
of not just the best heist movies of the 1950s, but possibly to the best heist movies of all time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and does great in all of them. Uh, any other things that you think like that makes it a heist movie? Tropes? Well, I mean, I, I mean, the heist is the centerpiece of the movie. Like, it's the, the entire movie. Yes. second act. Yeah, like, yeah. It, yeah. Building, toward, yeah. building towards the end. And yeah. then you have the aftermath of it yeah. and, and what all happens. You kind of, you get everything. It's, it's, I think it's, Thomas mentioned how like a lot of the times like heist movies, it's the, it's the aftermath. That's the big thing of like, what's it's, it's the big kind of crescendo of the movie. And that's usually like, my favorite part. Yeah, yeah. It's like every, everything went right well and then it didn't. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing. Um, well, it's like even if you pull off the heist, it's always like, how do we actually get the how money? Get, yeah, yeah, how do we get the money out? How yeah. do we? It's it's the like, do we separate? Like, it's it's all these different things that happen. Right. Um. So yeah, I think that's it on the killing, David. Anything else you want to say about the killing? No. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you better check it out. Go check it out uh, if you can find it streaming wherever you want to go. Um. So yeah. So next week, uh, and I guess part four of our series on the heist genre, we are talking about the town, and I'll have my have my good friend Hunter Barcroft coming back to talk about the town, and seeing how that is in a more I guess modern day context in twenty tens. Um. But that's all I have for this episode. If you're a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so you stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you rise from whatever platform you listen to the show on. Tell us what you're thinking. If you're liking it, um, we like hearing from you. Just go to Apple Podcasts, give us give us a rating, give us a review. Five stars would be very beneficial. If you're on Spotify, you can do it, or just do whatever platform you listen to. But tell your friends. Word of mouth is what helps this uh helps this podcast out and i like hearing it's like oh i told my friend about this one and they're now listening to this episode so i love hearing from some everyone about that um so yeah and finally don't forget to like and follow us on facebook twitter instagram tiktok all that jazz david thank you so much for joining me thank you for having me and thank you all for listening hope you listen to my episode soon bye <laughs>